This podcast is brought to you by Rain, the risk intelligence company. Try Rain Intelligence Briefs. Rain Intelligence Briefs separate the signal from the noise and turn information into actionable intelligence. Visit rainnetwork.com to sign up. That's R A N E network.com. We can go down the list of things that are of concern to the Central Asian states, but the bottom line is that they are looking in multiple directions. They're looking at the Chinese. They want the West involved more, but they can't seem to just let go of Russia because they don't know what will happen to Russia. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, a podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Once the crossroads of the world, Central Asia is re-emerging as a key region for trans-Eurasian trade. But the landlocked Central Asian stands sit in a complicated neighborhood, with a new sort of great game being played quietly among Russia, China, and more recently Turkey. With political security and uncertainty in nearby Afghanistan, and with a growing desire for additional outside investment to build on recent economic and transportation gains. Joining me today, after his recent visit to the region, is Kamran Bukhari, Senior Director for Human Security at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Thank you, Kamran, for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Roger. So, Kamran, as we're looking at some of the shifting geopolitics that are happening in the world, some of the shifting frameworks, Central Asia is becoming, uh, once again, an interesting focal point. Uh, on the southern flank, we have the evolution of what's happening in Afghanistan, you know, with some aspects of the the Taliban shifting and adjusting and being a little bit more focused on, on business and stability, but also still looking at things like um, some of their ideological uh, programs that are going on that are creating challenges between them and the West, and also an inability of the Taliban or an unwillingness to control some of the militancy that crosses over into Pakistan. We have uh, some of the stresses that have happened on the Russian border with Central Asia, um, the outflow of of Russians during the latest military mobilization, um, the the Central Asian states uh, not being accommodating toward Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, There is the continued expansion of rail traffic across Eurasia from China, some of which runs uh, obviously up through Russia, but increasingly looking at some of that southern route across Central Asia with the Transcaspian route for Chinese rail. So as we look at this, um, how do you see uh, Central Asia as a region um, evolving as as a focal point of global geopolitical attention? So thank you, Roger, for the opportunity uh, to talk about this. Um, for the reasons that you've outlined, Central Asia is perhaps the most important piece of geopolitical real estate on the planet right now, uh, considering all the forces that are pressing against the region from China to Russia and the southern flank that you mentioned, especially with Afghanistan, uh, mired in uncertainty and and radiating all sorts of instability. Uh, At the same time, there is the situation with Russia and Ukraine and its weakening uh, ability to influence events in Central Asia. Uh, China was, at least until fairly recently, was 
being considered as pushing into the region, at least economically, financially, from an investment point of view, building all sorts of in infrastructure and trade routes. Uh, the train route that you mentioned is one of them. Um, there, there is that portion of the BRI that uh, goes through Kazakhstan. Uh, but I think there is more than that. There is also now that Russia is uh, not just weakening, but also China is is in in uncertain situation given the political situation at home, given the the social situation with COVID restrictions, and just sort of the the bad economic news that keeps coming out of uh, China. So th this area is in flux now. If we set aside these uh, external uh, pressures on the region, uh, there is also the reality that each of the five stands uh, are now 30 plus years old as uh, independent states. And each of them uh, is going through a transition, uh, obviously a very different one. So Kazakhstan has a new president. It had unrest last year in January. We're about a year out from that, and uh, there's a lot of reforms that are taking place. There's going to be elections coming up, um, and and recently the referendum that basically brought in new set of rules and regulations, modifications to the charter, the constitution. Uh, you have Uzbekistan that is now for the last say seven years now almost that it's under a new president. It's also opening up. Uh, in terms of civil society, though not politically, uh, there are uh, there is Tajikistan, which is perhaps feeling the most pressure from Afghanistan, given the cross-border situation. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, you know, over the last uh, at least since 2005, has seen three uprisings. The last one being in 2020. Turkmenistan has a new leader, the son of the old leader, who's trying to you know settle into his new job. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the waning of Russian influence and how that impacts the domestic political economy uh, of these countries. So it's a moment of great transition, great uncertainty uh, and, and turmoil, uh, and this, which is why I think that this area is going to change uh, and there's going to be ups and downs in terms of stability, instability uh, for a variety of reasons. And it probably will become sort of the focal point of the world, uh, you know, in the years ahead. So as, as we think about Central Asia, you know, from classical geopolitics, Central Asia is part of Mackinder's heartland um, because it's largely inaccessible to uh, the Western maritime powers, right? The United States uh, uh, has a difficult time really pushing power into Central Asia. Certainly the United States right now is focused on things like um, the Indo-Pacific region and that maritime frontier. Uh, they're, they're encouraging the Europeans to focus on the Ukraine um, frontier and the Eastern European frontier with the Russians. And so Central Asia in some ways, is, as you're identifying it as a place of flux, is also a place that uh, is is in some ways suddenly not being paid attention to as strongly by the West because there are these other outside factors that are happening there. And then at the same moment, you're talking about some potential waning influence of the Russians because of their activities, the Chinese because of what's going on internally there. What then, um, from an internal or an inside-out perspective, 
what drives uh, the geopolitics of Central Asia, not only within the countries, but between them, because the relationship between and among the the, the five stands, as, as you, you noted, um, are, are long and complex as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it from the point of view of the stands, um, they are... Uh, trying to get used to a, a, a time in which, or, or this unfolding period before us, in which they have more freedom of action. They have more room to maneuver. There's a lot of peril. So, for example, Kazakhstan um, has, uh, you know, about 20% uh, of its population is ethnic Russian, shares a very long border with Russia. So whatever happens to Russia is of great importance to Kazakhstan. Uh, will you know? Will this Ukraine conflict and what it does to the regime in Russia? Uh, how does that impact the security and stability of Kazakhstan? Is something they're watching very closely. And if you notice their behavior, on one hand, uh, they are not joining, uh, you know, uh, in full scale alignment with the West in terms of condemning Russia and those. Uh, um, you know, heavy sanctions. Yes, they've agreed on many of the sanctions, uh, but they have to hedge their bets. Uh, and so for them, you know, on one hand, if if Russia becomes too weak in the coming years, uh, then what does that do to, you know, their stability on their northern flank? They, they have something like a 4,750-mile border with Russia. Um, at the same time, uh, the their ability to export energy uh, is is already being affected, and uh, because of the difficult hedging that they're doing, Russia uh, in uh, last year on several occasions prevented the flow of Kazakh oil through the uh, CPC, the Caspian Pipeline Consortium. So there is now this push on the part of Kazakhstan to um, you know at least get the West interested in what, what is being called the Middle Corridor. The Trans-Caspian Route uh, that runs from you know Kazakhstan is also connected to Uzbekistan and, and Turkmenistan is also one end of it. To, and it's a Trans-Caspian Route corridor uh, that has to be built. Uh, and then it goes through the South Caucasus, Azerbaijan. And, and with the shifting of balance of power over there between Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's become more accessible to Turkey, and Turkey becomes that transit state for energy, and the Turks are getting involved in that uh, through the uh, Union of Turkic States that they lead, and which includes many Central Asian countries. Um, so these are the things that, for the Kazakhs, these are questions that they have to ask themselves and 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 to monitor very uh, closely the situation because you don't want you want to be able to balance between your relationship with Russia uh, and open up to the possibility that uh, there is going to be greater Western interest in this region uh, and they need the investments they they need the assistance um, they're on a path away from uh, in the old Soviet style of, you know, running, uh, you know, a political economy. Uh, on the economic front, they've made great deal of progress in the last 20, 30 years. But politically, they're now opening up. And that's something that they, an experience that which they will, they think that if they, they will need Western help, uh, because Russia can't give that. So they're, for them, the current situation uh, is one of peril and one of opportunity. 
And, you know, one can make the same argument uh, for the other stands, though they don't share that kind of border with Russia. But nonetheless, their dependency on Russia has been significant. So, for example, even today, uh, there are 7,000 Russian troops in Tajikistan. Um, there is an effort on the part of the new leader of Turkmenistan to revive uh, you know, uh, the gas trade with, with Russia, uh, which you know, wasn't happening for a long time. Their only customer was were the Chinese. Uh, and so, I mean, we can go down the list of, of things that uh, are of concern to the Central Asian states. But the bottom line is that they are looking in multiple directions. They're looking at the Chinese. They're looking, they want the West involved more, but they can't seem to just let go of Russia because they don't know what will happen to Russia. Right. And I, th- and I think as we look at this, one of the ways to think about um, this region, and obviously, you know, again, there's, there's an outside in and an inside out perspective, but this is a crossroads region. It is the route between China and Europe. It is increasingly the route between Russia and the Indian Ocean, with Russia uh, exploring new north-south routes through this region because of the challenges that they have in Europe, that they have incurred upon themselves in Europe, shall we say. And the Russians are looking at a a north-south Trans-Caspian route that runs from Russia down to the Caspian and then down to Iran and then out into the Indian Ocean Basin, ultimately. The Chinese have been using this as an east-west corridor that sometimes goes through Russia that increasingly goes south. The Turks, as you noted, have have been increasing their role within this region, uh, looking at those east-west corridors with the chain, you know, the removal of the United States or the leaving of the United States out of Afghanistan. There were questions about whether that north-south corridor could finally open up, connecting South Asia up into Central Asia or creating new path routes for Chinese paths to use Central Asia, not just as East, West, and North, South. And so those routes across this region become one of the external defining characteristics. But what do you see as as the internal economic drivers? So, you know, the, the distance between Central Asia and their primary consumers, other than the Russians and the Chinese, certainly um, add to this complexity for how Central Asia states develop themselves, they've been dependent upon the Chinese. Can Western countries bring in that money? Will Chinese money re- remain there? And Or are they at a moment uh, where economic development again has started to surge and now may be um, delayed because of all of these external problems or crises? I think it's the latter. I think that if you look at uh, it from their point of view, uh, so there's a lot of potential opportunity. So assuming there can be some form of a stable, reliable relationship with Taliban-run Afghanistan, um, and that's a big if, uh, there is the potential for these states to export energy and have trade routes going to the Indian Ocean Basin. It's not just the Russians doing it through the Iranian corridor. Uh, and, and, and the Caspian Sea, it's each of these countries can, can have access. Uh, so, th- But there is the big problem of Afghanistan, the uncertainty, the instability, the insecurity, the fact that the Taliban uh, remain this actor that the world engages with without having diplomatic relations, remains under sanctions. Uh, and so that creates limits in what can be done. 
Uh, you probably have uh, read about it, the, the Chinese uh, investment uh, that recently took place. Uh, a Chinese company out of Xinjiang is investing in, um, in, in some energy uh, project in, in, in Afghanistan. But again, the same question, you know, can those projects come to fruition? And if so, how long and at what cost? Uh, so that's Afghanistan. But then you have Pakistan also destabilizing. And so because Afghanistan is landlocked, you don't have, you have to have, uh, you know, you, you not only have to go through Afghanistan, you have to go through Pakistan to gain access to the Indian Ocean. Uh, and then, of course, the relationship between India and Pakistan is bad. So therefore, India does not, is a big market, is a big player, and now becoming, you know, has become the fifth largest economy of the world. And it's a player that the Central Asians would love to be able to do business with. But again, you know, the double landlock situation uh, becomes a big impediment. If you move a little bit further west, you have Iran, again, potentially, you know, Turkmenistan has a long border, uh, significant border uh, with Iran, and it could be a route through which at least the Indians are hoping that when, you know, Iran is okay to do business with, and who knows when that will happen, that's their preferred route through the Shah Bahar port in the Persian Gulf, through the full length of the Iranian territory onto Turkmenistan and into other countries in Central Asia. Uh, but from the Central Asian point of view, Iran is under sanctions. Iran is go undergoing internal turmoil. So they, that is also not a viable uh, option for them. Uh, and that leaves the middle corridor as the preferred project uh, because it moves westwards and doesn't ha does not have to deal with the mess on the southern flank. Uh, but again, it, it doesn't have security and geopolitical impediments uh, physical ones, but I guess you can argue that you know uh, logistics and finance and investment is a physical impediment. Uh, so therefore, there's that concern, and I think that's you know I've been here in uh, you know in attending meetings here in D.C. with leaders from Kazakhstan who've come in and asking for the West to actually invest in the middle corridor, help them develop the pipelines and the trade corridors, uh, and and so that they can have access to the international market. So from their point of view, th that whole idea of being, you know, stuck in the middle of Eurasia physically uh, is a big challenge. And, and they need to figure it out, especially at a time when, you know, uh, their relationship with Russia is, is changing, is transforming, and they need to do business with the outside world. I mean, one of the reasons... Uh, why this region was beyond the approach or, or the access of the West was not just because it was behind the Iron Curtain for so long, but even if there was no Iron Curtain, you know, it's it's as you know, it's in the heart of Eurasia. There is no physical contact with it, and I think that is still going to be a challenge if the West is going to invest in something like the Middle Corridor. Uh, you know, how does that work? Do you go through Turkey? Do you go through Azerbaijan? Certainly the Turks want to do that. Their whole, uh, you know, purpose of backing Azerbaijan in the 2020 war over Nagorno-Karabakh was to have that jumping off position uh, or, or placement where they can, you know, then if they're secure in the South Caucasus, 
then they have to worry about, oh, okay, how do we go beyond the Caspian and do access, uh, sorry, do business with the Central Asian states? So geography is, is a big impediment. Well, one of the things you note you noted earlier is you know we're we're three decades on for these Central Asian states and and clearly they've gone through a lot of changes and adjustments, but in some ways their political systems are still remnants of the Soviet era, um, and and that I think also remains a challenge for uh, easy evolution of relations with the West as as there's a increasing competition for global norms and and how one is supposed to uh, manage a government and business and therefore be part of the broader international system. What are you seeing as the potential for a further evolution of the political systems in these countries? And, And how is that impacted or shaped by the social dynamics that exist there and this disconnect um, or distance from the the deeper components of the global economy? I mean, that's a, the excellent question, because if you look at what happened to Kazakhstan a year ago with the with the winter, uh, you know, protest that became very violent to the point where CSTO forces had to come in, although they didn't do a whole lot of the heavy lifting, but they were called upon. That was gave you a scale and the magnitude of the problem. And it, the fact that it led to the current president, and who was president at the time, President Tokayev, uh, to actually completely push out the founder of the country, who was the president for such a long time, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, because he held, even after he stepped down from the presidency in 2019, he held on to the chairmanship of the Security Council, which was a powerful position, gave him a lot of o- uh, oversight. The fact that he was pushed out uh, and the fact that there have been so many changes in terms of media laws, in terms of how, you know opening up, albeit slowly and gradually and incrementally, uh, the um, space for public participation in, in political life, all of that is not happening because the Kazakhs, you know, uh, are solely driven by this sort of altruistic desire to uh, become, you know, more democratic. That may be the case. But the fact of the matter is that they they fear uprisings in in this age of social media. I was in Kazakhstan, and you know uh, it's a very vibrant place. I mean, there are young people uh, like everywhere else. There's a youth bulge, and they are a, a a product of a new era and a new generation, and they have access to information, and they have you know demands on the state. So the challenge for them, uh, for a country like Kazakhstan, and this isn't limited to Kazakhstan only, it goes you know across the board uh, to obviously the varying degrees, is that how do you open up the system, and yet not let you know the the existing political order crumble because uh, it, there is that risk of if you give you know freedom, does the population ask for more? And how do you manage that transition? And how do you maintain stability? So that's the big, the big question right now. And I think, in my view, I think that's where the United States uh, can do a lot, and 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 its Western allies, because a they have the experience of how to transition uh, and help them, you know, with. Uh, it, Things like rule of law, establishing justice, parliamentary life, the basic nuts and bolts of, of democratic governance. 
Uh, they can't get it from China. They can't get it from Russia. There's nobody else who can provide that. Uh, so I think this is where the uh, the United States and, and its European allies will need to work uh, quite a bit to help these countries. And if that doesn't happen, then we're just leaving them to evolve on their own. And that increases the peril. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, uh, move away from command style economy. I think they've each of the country is in the region, especially Kazakhstan, has done tremendously well in doing that. But how do you open up political life, make it more equitable? And then it connects back into the economy. One of the biggest problems uh, behind that triggered the unrest of last year was the this sense of uh, injustice, economic injustice, that uh, you know there is an elite, there's an elite capture of the state, uh, and and how do you reduce that? How do you make sure that the state is not just a vertical entity, but it has uh, you know connections to the horizontal masses? So I think that that is going to be a big challenge, and there's a catch twenty two here because. On one hand, these countries want the help from the West. Meanwhile, the West is looking at this and saying, well, you know, uh, we don't want to do this and then strengthen some form of autocracy. Uh, We want genuine reform. And the standards that we sort of assess progress in terms of political reform and development are pretty stringent. So it's we're, we're caught in a very awkward situation uh, with regards to political transition in the region. Well, well, taking that that another step, um, how do you see the Central Asian states relate to one another? Um, and does that have an impact on their political and economic evolution? Is there a lot of competition? Are they actually able to cooperate? Are they moving towards some path where they can... Uh, at least resemble something like an ASEAN, or are the 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 ethnic and historic differences between them and the different states of development between them making it uh, challenging for them to work collaboratively? I think it's far more challenging. You know, ASEAN is is it's safe to say is not going to happen any too. ASEAN like conditions uh, are going to take a long time, primarily because of the way these states were carved out, you know, they emerged, they evolved as sovereign entities. But even in the Soviet era and before that, during Tsarist Russia, the slicing and dicing of the region that was done, not just by Stalin, although, you know, he did uh, quite a bit of the heavy lifting on that front. But the way the borders have been set up have created a situation where you have border disputes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan between Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. It's not that bad between the other countries, uh, but with the smaller countries, it is. And and if you look at the map, it's very convoluted. You have, uh, you know, ethnic Uzbeks and, for example, living, you know, in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. And likewise, you have other ethnicities that transcend those political borders that are now recognized by the international community. So those are things that are hardwired and hard to, uh, if you will, leave behind and move towards a cooperative situation. Again, you know, it varies. um, And, you know, demographics has a lot to do with it. So for Kazakhstan, it's a very large country. 
uh, compared to you know uh, its population, which is just 19 million. If you look at the uh, the, the area to, to population ratio, uh, it's it's huge. There are large tracts of land inside Kazakhstan that you know just you know are open and barren. Uh, Contrast that with Uzbekistan. It's a much smaller country, double landlocked, uh, and it has 36 million people, uh, and it doesn't have the you know the, the the scale of the economy that Kazakhstan has. So these are uh, concerns on the part of many of these states, uh, or some of the factors that shape their relationship to one another. Yes, there is an effort to uh, you know, cooperate. So one of the things, or one of the areas in which we've seen some cooperation, or at least tag teaming, uh, is, uh, you know, what should be the attitude towards uh, a Taliban-run Afghanistan? So that's just sort of like a case study. Um, if you look at Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan, uh, you know, they have one particular attitude, which is defined by pragmatism. So uh, although that relationship between Uzbekistan and, and uh, Afghanistan now is, is problematic, because, uh, given that Uzbekistan was supplying uh, uh, more than half of all electricity needs uh, of Afghanistan, and, and we're seeing a lot of uh, disputes emerge uh, in the last week or so, but for the longest time, over a year, the Uzbeks were giving electricity free of cost. Uh, why? Because they their view is that if if you have a pragmatic approach afghanistan can become something resembling you know a manageable polity and we don't have to worry about spillover the turkmen's have the same attitude uh, and the kazakhs so there's been a lot of uh cooperation on that front but then we have the case of tajikistan which has in sharp contrast with the other three countries has uh, a very uh, hostile relationship with the Taliban. It, there are historic reasons for it. And uh, it also has to do with Tajikistan's vulnerability. Uh, the leader, uh, you know, President Imam Ali Rahman, is, has been in power for 30-some-odd years. And there's a transition that's supposed to happen uh, at some point. Uh, the states uh, is heavily dependent on Russia uh, for security and for remittances. Um and in, and it has its own internal problems that are linked to Afghanistan. The, when the when the Soviets left Afghanistan in the late eighties, uh, you know, and and the, and then the communist regime fell a few years later, that you know triggered a civil war in Tajikistan. They have memory of that, so they're wondering now that the Taliban control the north of Afghanistan, where the ethnic Tajiks live in that country, what spillover effect should they expect? Uh, and they're really terrified at the prospects of what could happen. So they have a very diff different relationship, and they quite frankly haven't figured out what to do with the situation. Uh, and, and there's a big spillover uh, possibility that can happen. So they're not in lockstep on that issue. But then there are other areas in which they can cooperate. So the, I, I guess the situation is that there is room for cooperation, uh, but th there are enough internal uh, problems in each country, uh, again, to varying degrees, that basically inhibits the extent to which there can be regional cooperation.
So, so as you've you've identified, this is a tremendously complex area, um, and not not only because of uh, its ethnicity and its history, but because of its geography, um, the, the the complexities of its of its economic development, and of course its neighbors and things of that sort. And 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 I know we're kind of pushing time here, Kamran, but but I'd like to ask you one final thing, and that is, you know, after after your visits to the region and as you're looking at this region, let's say, what are the two or three key things to be watching for over the next 12 to 18 months that will help us uh, b- better monitor, better look for the likely direction of Central Asia, um, a region which you, you've identified as a as a real critical focal point um, uh, for the world system right now? Yeah, I would identify at least three, uh, if not more. One is um, what will be uh, Russia's position towards the region? How will Russia behave to, with the region uh, it's a former liege to each of the countries. Um, obviously, right now, it's mired in a war on its strategic front yard with Europe, uh, but this is their strategic rear flank. Uh, what is the Russian ability to shape events here? Uh, and then associated with that is to what degree um, do these states in the region, each of the five stands, uh, are able to gain, you know, freedom of movement or or ability to take decisions on their own or collectively or a combination of the two. Uh, so there's there is that second uh, thing that needs to be watched. Um, the big question is that with the transition, with this emerging vacuum, even if it is in slow motion, what is it that you know how will China uh, approach this region in a in the light of the fact that there are no U.S. troops in Afghanistan and they have to manage uh, account for that insecurity uh, spillover and they Pakistan is is doing very bad in terms of being able to pay its own bills that's a big headache for the Chinese so how much can they influence and and what is the spillover effect into a place like Tajikistan so I would watch what the Chinese are going to be doing. And then finally, you know, I would say um, there's a lot of, you know, things that can go wrong when it comes to Afghanistan and Central Asia. So I wouldn't assume that we're moving into sort of a new normal just yet, because um, I don't think they've anybody has figured out how to deal with the Taliban. It's literally sort of, you know, one step at a time. So I guess those are the four four things, the domestic component of, of each country, Russia's approach to the region, what, how are the Chinese going to deal with the region, and then what kind of impact does an unstable Afghanistan have on Central Asia? Well, I know there's a lot more we could be talking about, but I really want to thank you for joining me here today, Kamran. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We've been talking with Kamran Bukhari the Senior Director for Human Security at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. If you would like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of shifting global geopolitical balances and explore how to apply geopolitical analysis in your organization, visit rainnetwork.com 
and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.